Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Offer good for a limited time. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. Just go to LadderLife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. The big news story of the week was on Friday with the release of the non-farm payroll report for July. And the big story that everybody was telling from the president on down is this blockbuster jobs report that blew away expectations, proves that we're not in recession, that the Biden administration is right. We could forget about these weak GDP numbers The jobs data proves it. We've got this booming, red-hot economy with a smoking hot labor market. We're creating all these jobs. So we can't possibly be in recession with so much job creation. In fact, a lot of the investment banks now are thinking the Fed's going to raise by 75 basis points in September, not 50 given the strength in the labor market. But if you actually look beneath the surface of these numbers and you don't have to go that deep the jobs report tells a completely different story i don't think what we're looking at evidences strength in the labor market i think it evidences weakness particularly weakness in the economy not necessarily the labor market although the labor market itself is not strong just because jobs are being created so let's look at the actual numbers and then i'll get into what lies beneath the surface that everybody is ignoring because i was watching cnbc pretty much all day to see if anybody was going to question the narrative of this super strong jobs report and not a single guest did. Everybody accepted the numbers on face value and repeated the lie that we have this really strong labor market. And again, questioning the fact that we're in recession, even though the GDP numbers prove it, we can just ignore those GDP numbers because we don't like that conclusion will just focus on these job numbers because we like what they say about the economy. So here is the number. So the expectation was that we were going to create 250,000 jobs. And that would have been a lot fewer than the 372,000 jobs, which was reported the prior month, which was much higher than was expected. And not only did we beat 250,000, 
we beat the 372,000 from the prior month. In fact, we beat the upward revision because the prior month's number was revised up to 398,000 jobs, so an even bigger beat than what was originally reported. But the July number came out of the shocking 528,000 jobs, more than twice what had been expected. In fact, I can't remember a non-farm payroll report where we had a bigger beat. I mean, there probably was one, I just don't remember it, but it's rare that the number comes out more than double the estimate. In fact, if you look at the range of expectations, the low end was 220,000. The high end was 300,000. So nobody expected more than 300,000 jobs to be added and we added 528,000. So way above even the most optimistic estimate on the street. Also, the unemployment rate, it ticked down from 3.6% in the prior month. It was supposed to remain steady at 3.6. Instead, we went down to 3.5. And that matches the 50-year low in the official unemployment rate that we had just before the pandemic, maybe in February of 2020. Looking at the rest of the report, private sector payrolls, they shot up by 471,000. That was more than double what was estimated at 220,000. And again, the prior month's number was also revised up from 381,000 to 404,000. Even manufacturing came out double what was estimated, came out at 30,000. The estimate was 15,000, although the prior month was actually revised down in manufacturing from 29,000 to 27,000. The wage numbers also came out hotter than expected. Analysts were looking for a 0.3% gain in average hourly earnings matching the 0.3% gain from the prior month. Well, the prior month's gain was revised up to 0.4 and the July number came out at up 0.5. So significantly above expectations. And that means the year over year increase in average hourly earnings also is above estimates. They were looking for 5% and the actual number came out at 5.2%. So again, more pressure on the Fed because we're creating more jobs than the Fed thought or anybody thought. Wages are rising faster than people thought. Now again, bear in mind, the 5.2% increase in year-over-year average hourly earnings pales in comparison to the 9.1% increase in the CPI. So that means that real average hourly earnings are down 4%. And again, what I've been saying about the labor market is when you have a labor market where real wages are falling, especially as much as 4%, that does not indicate a strong labor market. I don't care about how many jobs are being created. What I'm looking at is are the workers getting pay raises or are they suffering pay cuts? Because in a strong labor market, you get a raise. The worker can go to the employer and demand a raise. And in a strong labor market, you'll get a raise because you can quit and you can get another job. It's in a weak labor market where workers don't have a lot of negotiating power. They have to accept lower wages. And that is what's happening. Even if you get a pay raise, if that pay raise is much lower then inflation, you are getting a pay cut because it's real wages that count. In fact, workers would be better off if they got a 2% pay cut, but consumer prices were down 5%. That's better than having your wages go up 5% and consumer prices go up 9%. But also you have to bear in mind that the 5.2% increase in average hourly earnings, that's the actual number. The government can't fudge that. It is what it is. They just look at the wages and they compare it to the wages a year ago. It's an honest comparison. That's not the case with the CPI. They're not looking at a fixed basket of goods a year ago and comparing it to a fixed basket of goods today. In other words, they're not looking at, hey, what did workers pay for groceries a year ago? And let's look at the same basket, like the same stuff in the cart. What does that cart cost today with the exact same items that it cost a year ago? That doesn't happen. 
I mean, the whole thing is manipulated with substitution and hedonics. I've talked about that a lot on the podcast because it includes people who are underemployed. And that would be people who have a part-time job, but they really want a full-time job. They may be looking for a full-time job full-time, but to get by, they settled for a part-time job. And it could be just a few hours a week. They've got some type of job, but they want more hours. They're underemployed. They're in U6. They're not in U3. And also the people who are so discouraged that they've stopped looking. I mean, they want jobs. They just don't think there is a job that they're qualified for. And so they're not looking. And so they're not counted in U3, but they are counted in U6. Now, even the people who have been discouraged for more than a year, they're not counted in U6 either. They drop out. The U6 unemployment rate is 6.7%. That is not a low rate. And if the U6 number included the long-term discouraged workers, it would easily be over 10%. Now, I don't know how much higher, but I'm sure it's over 10%. But here's the key. The U6 number used to be the number. Once upon a time, maybe 50 years ago, when the government reported the unemployment rate, that's the rate they used. They didn't use U3. I don't even think it existed. They just reported the unemployment rate, which included all the discouraged workers, which included the people who are underemployed. I'm not really sure when the government broke up these categories and decided to report only the number that looks smaller. Maybe it was in the early 1990s or late 1980s. I don't know for sure. I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find the data on the internet. Maybe somebody else could find it. But I have a feeling that they did it around the same time that they changed the CPI. They rejiggered the CPI to make it look like inflation was lower than it really was. The actual increase in prices is more like 18%, not 9%. And that really puts the decline in average hourly earnings into perspective. Workers are not getting a 4% pay cut. They're getting a 12% pay cut. They're having their pay slashed. And that explains a lot of the other negatives in this report that nobody in the media is talking about. Your business is your dream, but you want to hire the people who share that dream and have the skills to help you make your business grow. You can find them faster with Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed's Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for the applicants who meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide who already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. One of the things I like most about Indeed is how simple it makes the hiring process, especially Indeed assessments, where you can select from over 100 hard and soft skills tests to add to your job post, and you can hone in on the candidates who have the right skills faster. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Also, to circle back and talk about that low 3.5% unemployment rate and the fact that it's the lowest in 50 years, we have to bear in mind that the official unemployment rate is not the actual unemployment rate. What the government reports at 3.5% is U3. The actual unemployment rate is U6. There is a big difference between the official unemployment rate and that U6 number 
because the U6 number includes all the underemployed people, people who are working a part-time job. They really want a full-time job, but they can't find one. They're looking for one. So they settled for some part-time job just to get by. They are not considered unemployed in the official rate, but they are in the U6. Also, there are a lot of people who are discouraged. They want a job. They were looking for a while. They couldn't find one. And so they stopped looking. They still want a job. They're just too discouraged to look for jobs. They are not included in the official unemployment rate. They are included in the U6 rate. Now, there are some unemployed people that aren't even in the U6 rate. If you are discouraged for a year, then you fall off U6. So people who are long-term discouraged don't count. Only in the first year of being discouraged are you included in the U6 number. So if the U6 number included all of the discouraged workers, including those who have been discouraged for over a year, I'm sure the rate would exceed 10%. How much higher than 10%? I really don't know, but it would be over 10%. But here is the key. Once upon a time, and certainly 50 years ago, the only unemployment number that was reported was U6. And of course, it wasn't U6. It was just the unemployment rate. And it included all of the long-term discouraged workers. So to compare the unemployment rates today to some unemployment rate in the past, in the distant past, is apples to oranges because we're comparing rates that are calculated using a different measure. Now, I don't know exactly the year that they made this change. I tried to look it up before I recorded the podcast and I was searching online and I couldn't find it. But my guess is that the government started this whole U3, U6 nonsense in the early 1990s. Now, maybe it was a little earlier than that, but that would be my guess. And I think it happened around the same time that they were changing the definition of inflation because they redefined the CPI. The goal was to fool the public into thinking that inflation was lower than it really was. Well, they probably did the same thing with unemployment. They came up with a new way to measure unemployment so that they can also pretend that unemployment was lower than it really was. That means the government can claim credit for having a better economy because they can say, look, inflation is low, unemployment is low, but to get low inflation and low unemployment, the government cheated. The government changed the rules of the game. Kind of like they're trying to change the rules now on recession by saying, well, two negative quarters isn't a recession. They changed the way they measured both inflation and unemployment in order to create the impression that unemployment was lower. But what we actually have now, even with the government's admission in U6 of 6.7%, that is still a high unemployment rate historically. But if you factor in the long-term discouraged and it's over 10%, it is very high. In fact, I pulled up some historic data just to compare. Let's look at unemployment in the 1950s and the 1960s. I don't even want to count the 1940s. It was really low during the Second World War. But let's just look at the 1950s and the 1960s. Yeah, you did have a little war. You had Korea, you had Vietnam, but these were nowhere near the scale of the Second World War. So in 1950, the unemployment rate was 4.3%. So that's much lower than today's 6.7% which again is actually more than 10%. But let's look at the rest of the decade. 1951, 3.1%. 1952, 2.7%. 1953, 4.5%. 1954, it went up to 5%. 1955, back down to 4.2. 4.2 in 1956. 5.2 in 1957. 6.2 in 1958 back to 5.3 in 1959. So the entire decade of the 1950s, We didn't have a single year where unemployment was 6.7, which is what it is now. Again, the U6 is the number, but again, that number still doesn't count the long-term unemployed, but all of those people were included in all those low unemployment rates that I just read out for the 1950s. Same situation, though, in the 1960s. We had 6.6% unemployment in 1960. 
down to 6% in 1961, down to 5.5 in 1962 and 1963, down to 4% in 1964, 3.8% in 1966 and 1970, then down to 3.4% in 1968, 3.5% in 1969. So for 20 years throughout the entire 1950s and 1960s, the unemployment rate was much lower than it is right now. It was less than half. In fact, it was probably less than a third if you include the long-term discouraged workers. Also, if you look at the criteria that must be met in order to be considered to be unemployed, I bet even that leaves out a lot of people who are looking for jobs. They're just not looking hard enough to qualify because in order to be unemployed, you have to actually be interviewing for jobs. You have to be sending out resumes. You just can't look at some job site on the internet and take a look and see if there's any jobs that you might be interested in. And if you can't find any jobs, so you don't apply for any, that would not count as being unemployed. And I think that probably has a much bigger impact on the official numbers than it might have had in the past when you didn't have these online job sites that you can go to and view a bunch of job openings, but then not follow up by sending a resume or having an interview because the jobs weren't of interest to you. Those people are not going to be counted as being unemployed, even though they clearly are. So it's simply not true to pretend that we have some kind of historically low unemployment rate. We have had unemployment rates much lower than what we have now. It's just that back then we measured them more honestly and now we measure it more dishonestly. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, while a lot of people were focused on the raw number of jobs created, 528,000 not that many people were concentrating on the quality of those jobs, the type of jobs that they were. 86.5% of the jobs created were in the service sector. And a lot of those jobs tend to be low paying. A lot of them tend to be part time. But let's look at the categories. The number one category was leisure and hospitality. That's 96,000 jobs. Again, a lot of these are the jobs that were lost during the pandemic that are being restored in hotels, in restaurants, in bars. In fact, 74,000 of the 96,000 were in restaurants and bars. So that's number one. These are historically low-paying jobs and a lot of part-time temp jobs are going to be found in leisure and hospitality, especially over the summertime. Then you have professional and business services. That was 89,000 jobs. Healthcare, 70,000 jobs. Government added 57,000 jobs. Social services, 27,000. Retail trade, those are stores, 22 thousand transportation and warehousing maybe a lot of amazon type stuff twenty one thousand jobs there information was thirteen thousand and financial services also added thirteen thousand that's pretty much most of the jobs if you look at the goods producing job because we have all these supply shortages we need to be making stuff manufacturing added as i said earlier thirty thousand jobs even though that was twice estimate it's still a small percentage. It's only 5.7% of the total jobs added were in manufacturing. Now, I know manufacturing is a small part of our economy. That's a big problem, but it is 8.5% of the jobs. So manufacturing didn't even add a proportionate number of jobs to what percent it is of the job market. It's 8.5% of the jobs but only 5.7% of the new jobs went to manufacturing. So manufacturing is becoming an even smaller percentage 
of the total employment, which is a problem because we have a shortage of so much stuff. You know, there's all this talk about how we have to bring stuff home. We have to stop outsourcing. We have to make more stuff here. In fact, Biden is bragging about the fact that we're making more stuff here. Well, if that were the case, we would be seeing a bigger increase in manufacturing employment. We're not. I mean, we can't make stuff here without the workers to make the stuff, but we're not adding in new workers. So we're still dependent on foreign workers to make that stuff. Looking at mining, 7,000 jobs added there. Oil and gas, 2,000 jobs. You would think that would be a much bigger number with the big increase in oil and gas prices that we'd have more people working in that sector, but we're not getting a big increase in employment there. Oh, and by the way, oil prices have been very weak. In fact, as of Friday, the price of oil is about $88.5 a barrel. That is lower than the oil price was just before Putin invaded the Ukraine. Now, if all the inflation is because of Putin's price hikes, but oil is actually cheaper now than it was when Putin invaded the Ukraine, how can the inflation possibly be Putin's fault? Now, unless you think that all of a sudden we're going to have a complete collapse in consumer prices, that all the inflation since the Ukraine invasion is about to be completely unraveled and prices are about to be slashed, then you can't possibly think that we have inflation because of Putin's price hikes when Putin has actually helped deliver a price cut. Now, I get it that gasoline prices at the pump are still a lot higher than they were when Putin evaded. But you can't blame that on Putin because he doesn't have any control over those prices. If you want to blame him for the oil prices, okay, although I think the sanctions had more to do with the rise in prices than the invasion. But whatever, that's just on oil. What happens to the price of oil once it comes to the United States and has to be transported and pumped. That's got nothing to do with Putin. That's on us. That's all the rising costs in our economy that are the result of inflation. But at least the price of oil should put to rest the myth that all the price increases that we've had since the invasion of the Ukraine are Putin's fault. The fact that oil prices are lower now than the day before the invasion proves conclusively that the price hikes are not Putin's fault. Then getting back to these jobs, construction added 32,000 jobs. So if you total up manufacturing, mining, oil and gas, and construction, that's 71,000 jobs. That's 13.5% of the total. We need a lot more jobs in those sectors than what we're getting. If we really want to alleviate the supply problem, we need more production, and those are the industries that need more employment. We don't need more people working in the service sector. If we want more stuff, we need more people employed making stuff. Now, getting back to the report itself, there was one dark cloud that got a few mentions in the news, but nobody really delved down deep into it. They just kind of dismissed it as an outlier the one weak part of an otherwise super strong jobs report, and that is labor force participation. It was at 62.2% the prior month, and it actually fell down to 62.1% in July. That 62.1% labor force participation rate is actually the lowest of the year. It was at 63.4% in February of 2020 before the pandemic. Now, the highest it has gotten since the pandemic was in March of this year, despite 528,000 jobs being created. And despite the unemployment rate falling, people actually left the workforce. All these jobs were created while the number of people working actually went down. Think about that. We have 528,000 new jobs, but we have fewer people actually working. One of the most important things you could do for your family is make sure they're financially taken care of in the event that you're not there to do it yourself. Unfortunately, most people looking for life insurance 
end up being sold a whole life policy when what they really need is term. Because term life allows you to maximize the size of your death benefit while minimizing your premiums, freeing up more money to allow you to make much better performing investments than what otherwise might be available inside a whole life policy. That's where ladder can help. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone and a laptop and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. And there are no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. If you change your mind in the first 30 days, you'll get a full refund. Ladder's policies are issued by insurers with long-proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, there's no better time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R, life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved. Now there's only one possible explanation for having fewer people working, but having more jobs being worked. And what that means is that the people that are still in the labor force and that are working are now working multiple jobs. So the jobs that we are creating are not jobs for people who don't have any job and are now getting a job. These are people who already have jobs and are getting a second job or are getting a third job. In fact, the number of people who have multiple jobs is now at 7,541,000. That's the highest it's been since the beginning of the pandemic. But the number of people who have two full-time jobs just hit a new all-time record high in July. The question is, why do so many people feel that they need to have a second job or a third job? Again, if we really had a strong labor market, one job would be all you needed. But we don't have a strong labor market. Because we have a weak labor market, jobs don't pay very well. People are being forced to accept pay cuts. So the only way that they can make ends meet is by taking on another job or a third job. And that is exactly what's been happening. You know, if you look at the household survey, once again, much weaker than the establishment number that we talk about, the 528,000 jobs that gets all the headlines. The number of jobs created in the household survey was just 179,000, much lower. And remember, the June number was a loss of 315,000 jobs. This is the fourth month in a row where we've seen a much lower number in the household survey than we have in the establishment survey. In fact, during the month of July, this booming month of job creation, the number of full-time workers decreased by 71,000. In fact, that is the second month in a row where the number of people with full-time jobs went down. But in July, the number of people working part-time jobs went up by 384,000. And that includes people that are working part-time jobs voluntarily and those who have been forced to work part-time jobs involuntarily, meaning that they wanted to work full-time, but their bosses cut their hours, and so now they've been forced to work part-time. But the number that really puts this whole thing into perspective, if you go back since March of 2022. And again, March was the high point of the labor force participation rate, and it's been downhill ever since. But if you go back to March, according to the establishment survey, we've created about 1.7 million jobs. But according to the household survey, during the same period of time, 168,000 people have left the workforce. So what that means is that all 1.9 million or so of the jobs that have been created since March were created for people who already had jobs. So these are second jobs, these are third jobs, 
Most people don't want to work multiple jobs. The fact that they have to is not evidence of a strong economy. Look, we could create a lot of jobs if the economy is weak enough. Let's say inflation is so bad that it so eviscerates the purchasing power of retirees that all these people who have been retired are now forced to go back into the workforce. That would count as jobs being created. Do you think retired people are happy about the fact that now they're working at Walmart? No, they're not happy about it. They'd rather be playing golf or playing with their grandkids. If they're forced to work when they'd rather be retired, how is that evidence of a strong economy? If anything, it evidences a weak economy. What if the economy was so weak because there was so much inflation and real wages were so low? What if kids had to start dropping out of high school to get jobs to help their parents pay the rent or to put food on the table. Would Biden want to claim credit for a surge in child labor if children were forced to go get jobs? If the choice was get a job or starve because your parents can't afford food, would that really be a sign of a strong economy? I don't think so. But of course, Biden was out with another press conference today bragging about all the jobs that he's created. And first of all, he hasn't created anything. The jobs that exist were not really created. They were restored. Again, these are the jobs that were temporarily put on hold because of the pandemic. Now the pandemic is over. We've reopened the economy. We've told the people who we told not to work that they can go back to work. And a lot of them have. But you know, a lot of them have not. A lot of people are still not working. Despite the fact that we have restored the number of jobs that we had prior to the pandemic, we haven't restored the number of people working. We just have the people who are working are working more jobs than they were working before. And why do the people who work have to work multiple jobs? Because one job is not enough, or in some cases, two jobs aren't enough. They need more jobs. And in fact, Biden boasted about the fact that there are now more people working in America than ever before. Employed. That's a lie. Maybe we have more jobs than ever before, but we don't have more workers. It's just that each worker has more jobs than ever before because the economy is weak, not strong. The high point of people having jobs, employed people, is February of 2020. But even since the economy reopened, July is not a record. The record since the pandemic is March of 22. In fact, even in May of 22, more people were working than are working in July. So the president was wrong. People are working more jobs, but more people are not working. What we have are more people who have decided not to work. You know, another thing that Biden was bragging about was how much he cut the budget deficit. He's this fiscal hawk that has been slashing the federal budget deficits. He hasn't slashed anything. Now, one thing that Biden said that was true, and it's something that I warned about in real time in the past, was that when Trump was president, the budget deficit went up every year that he was president. And that is true. And that was a mistake. And I was critical of President Trump for presiding over this big increase in the national debt and signing off on one budget after another that produced a higher deficit than the year before. In fact, Trump was leading the charge for more government. He wanted to spend more on the military. He wanted to spend more on welfare. He created the Space Force. Trump was a big spender and he didn't care if he was spending borrowed money. So Biden's criticism of Trump is legitimate, except he's in no position to criticize Trump for being reckless and irresponsible when it comes to spending because he's being even more reckless and irresponsible. Now, yes, technically the deficit has come down during this year, but that's only because it was so high because of the pandemic. In Trump's last year, when the pandemic started, that's when we had the huge 
forgivable loans, the Paycheck Protection Program, the massive unemployment benefits that in some cases were double or triple what people actually earned when they were still employed. But we enacted all of this COVID stimulus at the end of the Trump administration and it spilled over into the beginning of the Biden administration. But now that all those emergency stimulus measures are no longer there, the budget deficit has naturally come down. It hasn't come down because of anything that Biden has done. This was on autopilot. It was going to happen regardless of who was president. The problem is there's been a big increase in government spending and there's more increases that are getting passed. But for Joe Biden, the budget deficits would have come down a lot more than they have. But because of his reckless spending, the reduction in the budget deficits has not been as great as it otherwise would have been. And so therefore, the deficits that we have now are much bigger than what they would have been had we not had all the additional Biden spending. And in fact, we have had this temporary reduction in the budget deficits in the years that follow We are about to see the budget deficits moving back higher again. So it is completely disingenuous for Joe Biden to pretend that he is some kind of fiscal hawk who has been fighting inflation by shrinking deficit spending, when in fact he has been driving deficits higher and therefore fueling an increase in inflation. So the bottom line on the 528,000 jobs that were gained in July, more than double what was expected and what is being heralded as proof that we can ignore the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. We're not in recession. We have a super strong economy. Pretty much all of those jobs were low-paying, part-time jobs that were created for people who already had a full or part-time job but weren't able to make ends meet and who were therefore required to take another job in order to pay the bills. In other words, this is not about unemployed people getting good jobs. This is about employed people who have lousy jobs being forced to take a second or third lousy job in order to get by. But in some cases, even two or three lousy jobs isn't enough to get by. Workers are increasingly relying on their credit cards and other means of debt in order to pay bills that their paychecks simply can't cover. We got the consumer credit numbers that also came out later in the day on Friday. And here again, we blew away expectations. They were looking for a $24.5 billion increase in credit, which would have followed a $22.3 billion rise in the prior month, which was actually upwardly revised to $23.8 billion. But the June number came out at a staggering $40.1 billion, well above estimates. In fact, the consensus range was from $22 billion to $35 billion, so well above the top end of the range. In fact, this is the second highest monthly increase in consumer credit ever. In fact, for auto and student loans, it was the biggest monthly increase in history. Now, why are people having to borrow more money to buy cars? Well, because cars are more expensive. Plus, also, they probably have less available cash to buy the car, and so they have to borrow a larger percentage of the total purchase price. And of course, college tuitions are going up, so people are having to borrow more money to pay those tuitions. And in fact, people are more likely to want to borrow money because they know that they won't have to pay it back. Either there'll be some kind of moratorium on repayment or outright forgiveness. But even with all these jobs, people still don't earn enough to pay the bills. They have to go into debt to pay the bills. They have to dip into their savings. And by the way, Consumers started with a pretty big cushion because they got all those stimulus checks. You had consumers sitting on a pile of cash. Remember, a lot of people got big bonuses during COVID because they were collecting unemployment benefits that were two to three times what they were earning. And of course, they didn't have the expenses of going to work every day because they were staying at home. So they had a big fat cushion, which they've already blown through. Imagine the shape households would be in right now if they didn't have 
all that stimulus money to spend. Well, now that money has been exhausted and there's no new stimulus checks on the way. So people are in a lot of trouble. They're pretty much tapped out. Their credit cards are maxed out. So where do we go from here? The craziest part about it, all the articles that I read online about the big increase in consumer credit had a positive spin. Consumer credit was going up, and that was evidence of the strong economy. Why would more debt evidence the strong economy? Well, according to the media, when people are in good shape, when they have a job and things are good, they feel confident enough to take on more debt. And so an increase in debt is a sign of prosperity. That's complete nonsense. The opposite is true. When people are prosperous, when they're making more money, they pay down their debt. They don't need to go into debt. They can pay cash. Going into debt is not a sign of prosperity. In fact, I've been talking about this for a long time, debunking the myth that taking on debt is a sign of prosperity. In fact, I came up with an analogy many, many years ago and it really does a good job of putting it into perspective. In fact, Jeff Gunlock liked my analogy so much that he told the same story and passed it off as his own, but I'm going to repeat it again because not a lot of people may have heard it. But let's say you run into an old college buddy of yours, you haven't seen him for a long time, and you say, hey, how you doing? And he tells you, oh, well, I've maxed out all my credit cards, I've blown through my retirement fund. I've taken out a third mortgage against my house. I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, right? If your friend told you that, what would you conclude? Would you say, oh, he must be doing great because he's got all this debt or he must be in trouble if he's borrowed so much money. On the other hand, you run into another college buddy of yours and you ask him, how's he doing? And he says, oh, I've totally paid off all my credit cards. I fully funded all my retirement accounts, I've paid off my mortgage. In other words, this guy has gotten out of debt. Now, does that guy sound like he's struggling economically, that he's in trouble because he's paid off all of his debt? Of course not. The guy that's paid off all of his debt is the guy that's doing well. The guy that's in debt is struggling. That's why people have to borrow money when times are bad. When times are good, people save money. People don't aspire to be deep in debt. People aspire to be out of debt, to be debt-free. Now, there is some truth to the fact that, oh, if people are employed, well, maybe they'll go out and buy a new car and they'll take out a loan to buy that car. And if they were unemployed, they may not be willing to take out that loan, but people would be better off if they didn't need the loan, if they just bought the car and paid cash that would be a sign that somebody is doing well, the fact that they don't need to borrow money to afford to buy a car. But the other part about what's happening with all this debt is that a lot of the debt is being accumulated to buy food, to pay utilities, to buy gasoline, to pay insurance. It's not like people are using their credit cards or borrowing money to buy extravagant luxury items. They are using credit to cover the necessities. So the fact that people have to borrow money to buy groceries, whereas in the past they can afford to pay cash for their groceries, is not a sign of a strong economy. The fact that people are drowning in debt is a sign of a weak economy. In fact, debt is a lifeline that is keeping people afloat. They're being kept afloat by multiple jobs and by debt. But there's only so many jobs you can have because there's only so many hours of the day and there's only so much money you can borrow before the lenders cut you off. And we are rapidly approaching that point. In fact, we got some corporate news on Friday that also confirms how weak the consumer is despite having so many jobs. Warner Brothers Discovery reported disappointing earnings. In fact, they didn't have any earnings. They had losses of $3.42 billion in the second quarter. That seems like an awful lot of money to lose in one quarter. The stock dropped by 16.5% on the miss. You know, that stock is now down 81% since its high last year. This was the first 
earnings report or loss report since Warner Brothers merged with Discovery. And I think the big problem is their streaming services. And I was warning about this. Consumers simply can't afford to pay for all these streaming services. There's a lot of competition. Consumers are cutting back. They're giving up on these services. And in fact, Warner Brothers Discovery announced that they would merge those two streaming services, HBO Max and Discovery Plus, into one single platform. And they're also talking about launching a free version of that platform that would be ad-sponsored. So you'd get to stream for free and you'd have to watch ads. Why do they want to do that? Because they realize that consumers can't pay for the services because they can't afford it. So what they have to do is watch for free. And then Warner Brothers Discovery has to rely on advertising. But again, if the consumers are broke, there's only so much money the advertisers are willing to spend. And again, all these companies are trying to tap in to the same advertisers who are all selling to the same broke customers. I've been warning about this for some time on this podcast. Also, as I predicted, they announced layoff. They are paring back their workforce, including 70% reduction in the people working in development at HBO Max. So obviously that means they're not going to be coming up with as much original content because they can't afford it. In fact, one other thing that Warner Brothers announced was that they're canceling Batgirl. They had already spent $90 million on this movie, and now no one's going to ever see it. They're basically destroying it, and it's never going to see the light of day. So why did they decide to cut their losses at $90 million? Apparently, they had some screenings of the movie, and it was so bad that they didn't even want to finish it, and they probably were embarrassed to release it, and so instead they just got rid of it. And that's just added insult to injury on an abysmal quarter. But again, all of this to me just shows how weak the economy is and how weak the consumer is. Everybody is talking about how the consumer is so strong that he's got jobs. Well, yes, he's got multiple jobs that he doesn't want, but he's not strong. He's weak or she's weak. That's why they're forced to take so many jobs. Meanwhile, you got more people than ever before who don't have any jobs at all. Obviously, they're not strong. I have no idea where all these people who have chosen not to work are getting their money. I mean, there are jobs available, but more Americans than ever don't want them. How are these people getting by without jobs? Is it all welfare and food stamps or is there something else going on? Certainly, there are a lot fewer people working now than just a couple of years ago before the pandemic. Maybe all of the stimulus money and bailout money and welfare money helped destroy the work ethic, whatever we had left. Maybe during the pandemic, a lot of people just discovered how much they really didn't like working and they really preferred leisure. And even though they're no longer getting these supercharged unemployment benefits or stimulus checks, they still don't want to go back to work. And one final word, though, on unemployment. We did get the weekly first-time jobless claims on Thursday, as we get every week. And again, a high number, 260,000 new claims for unemployment. That actually matched expectations. It was a gain of 6,000 from the week prior, which was actually revised down from 256,000 to 254,000. But again, that week was above expectations back then, even with the downward revision. But look at the four-week moving average. As I said last week, I expected it to move above 250,000 this week, and it did. It's now 254,750. That is the highest we've been since sometime in 2021. But the more important thing is the trend. We are continuing to move higher in new jobless claims. That is the leading economic indicator. The job numbers are more of a coincident indicator. And I think the unemployment rate is more of a lagging indicator. Historically, you can have job creation in the early stages of a recession and then job destruction as the recession progresses. And typically, the unemployment rate peaks at the end of the recession. It's typically very low when the recession begins. I want to wrap up today's podcast by talking about the market reaction to the jobs numbers. And it wasn't a big reaction in the stock market. The market initially sold off 
on the good news is bad news. But the Dow Jones actually finished the day up about 76 points. The S&P 500 was down, but only slightly, about 0.16%. A bigger decline in the NASDAQ that was down a little over three quarters of a percent. The Russell 2000 was actually up eight-tenths of a percent. That was the strongest of the stock market indexes. But the real action was in the foreign currency market, the gold market, and in the U.S. dollar. So starting with the bond market, yields surged across the board in the bond market. A six-month treasury bill is now yielding 3.03%. A one-year bill is at 3.21%. That is higher than the yield on a five-year, on a 10-year, and higher than the 3.07% yield on a 30-year. So the yield curve getting more inverted. The two-year is up to 3.23%. It's only the five and the 10-year yields that are below 3%. A five-year yield is at 2.96. It was still up big on the day, but not quite enough to get over 3%. And the yield on a 10-year treasury is at 2.83%. Again, the markets are anticipating that the Fed is going to reverse and pivot next year and start cutting rates because the rate hikes that are going to be needed are going to put the economy into an even deeper recession or maybe for some people into recession because they still are in denial that we're in one now. But the bond market is anticipating rate cuts, but the bond market is also anticipating that inflation returns to 2%. And that's where the bond market really has it wrong. Because when the Fed pivots, inflation is still going to be well north of 2%. And the pivot is going to send it to even higher levels than it is right now. And if the bond market understood this, bond yields would be soaring. Bond prices would be collapsing. We would not have an inverted yield curve. We would have a much steeper yield curve as investors discounted in higher future inflation. The fact that investors still don't understand that, that they still think that 2% or lower inflation is going to persist for the next 30 years just shows you how little the markets understand inflation and the predicament the Fed is in and the future trajectory of monetary policy. And that is what is creating the incredible investment opportunity because assets are so mispriced. Treasury bonds are overpriced and gold is underpriced. Now, gold sold off. It was down about 25 bucks almost immediately after we got this stronger than expected report. But I thought gold held up pretty well, especially considering the fact that it was up about $25 on Thursday, the day before the report, showing that maybe investors were expecting a weak jobs report and instead they were surprised by this super strong report. I actually thought that gold might have fallen by 50 bucks. And the fact that it only fell by 25 in the face of what was reported as this super strong number and with such a big backup in interest rates, I think showed some strength in the gold market. And in fact, by the end of the day, the price of gold was down just under $15. We closed at $17.76, I think up about $12 or $15 on the week. Silver also recovered most of its losses. It ended up down about 25 cents but it did finish negative on the week, maybe 30 or 40 cents. But I think there's some real buying going on in the gold market. I think investors took advantage of this dip to buy. And so I am getting more confident in my call that the low is in for gold. Now, as far as the top being in for the US dollar, I'm a little less confident there, but I still think we could be at a top. But the dollar index was up 0.88 on the day. We're back at 106 and a half. We were up about 120 in the dollar index. So we did finish off the highs of the day, but it was an up week for the dollar index. Remember, it closed last week 
at 105.9 and the low intraweek was all the way down at 105.05. So for now, the dollar index has held on to that 105 support. So it's still too early to say whether 109.2 is going to be the high, but I still think there's a good chance that the high is in. I'd just like to see a close below 105 to have better confirmation that that is the case. But regardless, I think the precious metals markets, the dollar market, the bond market are all mispriced because investors are still clueless with respect to the future trajectory of inflation. They don't understand how dramatically the game has changed. And they don't understand that if the Fed goes back to rate cuts in QE in the next recession, whether that recession has already started or starts in the near future, the reaction in the future is going to be very different than the reaction in the past. Because in the past, when the Fed went down this road, when we got 0% interest rates, when we got quantitative easing, inflation was below 2%. And so the Federal Reserve had that cover. They were able to say, we can have this monetary policy because inflation is so low. In fact, they actually claimed that inflation being too low was a problem and that one of the benefits of quantitative easing and 0% interest rates was that we would push inflation back up to target because the Fed wanted 2% inflation and we only had 1.6. And so in order to achieve this 2% target as if 2% was somehow better than 1.6, we needed this stimulative monetary policy to get to where we needed to be. But If the next time the Fed starts cutting rates and goes back to QE, inflation isn't 1.6, maybe it's 5, 6, or 7%. Yes, it may be lower than 9%, but a lot higher than 2%. There is no justification for that kind of excessively easy money when you have high inflation, when you are two or three times above the official 2% target. So I think when the Fed goes back to the QE well and cuts rates in an environment of high inflation, not low inflation, you're going to have a very different reaction in the foreign exchange market, in the bond market, and in the precious metals market. And very few investors are prepared for that reaction. And that is why I've been pounding the table on this podcast for everybody to get fully prepared for that outcome and make sure to be out of U.S. dollars, take advantage of this sucker's rally in the dollar, and to buy more commodities, gold, silver, take advantage of the fact that these assets have declined in price and also take advantage of the overvalued U.S. dollar to buy undervalued foreign stocks, value stocks, dividend-paying stocks. We have a perfect setup for this investment strategy to play out. We're just waiting for the catalyst to get it all started, and that is either going to be the Fed pivot or the market's anticipation of that pivot and for investors to finally figure out or at least begin to figure out what that implies for both the U.S. economy and for financial markets. In fact, I'll be speaking more about this topic in my keynote talk at a Money Show virtual conference coming up on Wednesday, August 10th. My presentation starts at 9.30 a.m. So if you want to listen live, make sure and sign up at themoneyshow.com. 